Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. This episode of Stock Club is brought to you by Hyundai. Restart your journey towards a greener world with Hyundai's next generation of zero-emission cars. Find out more about their range of electric vehicles and the savings they can bring to your company and employees at Hyundai.ie. Hi there and welcome to the Stock Club Podcast. I'm James and with me this week is my Wall Street co-founder and chief investor Emmett Savage and our head analyst Rory Caron. In this episode, we're talking about Zoom's incredible quarter and if the company is too expensive at today's prices, three stocks that have been beaten down by COVID-19 and the road to recovery for them, and an exclusive interview where we learn how the game of poker can make us all better investors. So guys, I don't think we can start today's podcast without first talking about Zoom. Uh, The video conferencing company reported on its second quarter earnings earlier this week. And it was really something to behold. Um, here are just some of the key numbers to, to lead us into this conversation that came from Zoom's call. So revenue in the quarter jumped 355% to 663 million for the quarter. Um, compare that to two years ago, that's a nine-fold increase in revenue for Zoom. Uh, free cash flow increased 22-fold in the quarter to 373 million. Gross margins increased from 69.5% to 72.3%. The number of customers paying over $100,000 a year doubled. Overall, they recorded 148.4 million monthly active users in the quarter, which is up 4,700% year over year. Uh, They were just some of the the big figures I grabbed. Rory, I'm going to come to you first. I assume you're going to say that you predicted all of this when you picked Zoom for the My Wall Street shortlist back in January. (laughs) Yeah, of course it did. <laughs> no, I mean, look, we when we added Zoom. It was pre-COVID. It was pre-COVID in the Western world, anyway. The yeah. first reports could have come out in, in China, but it certainly wasn't um, the issue that people thought it was what it's what it's become. Um, those numbers, as you list them off, James, are just uh, it's standing. I don't think I've ever seen revenue figures, growth figures at all like that. Certainly not from a company. Uh, of Zoom size, yeah, and, and they they weren't they weren't coming off a low base like they they were doing pretty well this time last year too. No, not at all. It's it's certainly not what what these call a soft comparable. You know, they they were up ninety five percent in revenue in the same period last year, and um, and like yeah, some of the metrics are, are incredible. You know, they've nearly a thousand enterprise customers now paying them over a hundred thousand dollars a year. Uh, they've three hundred seventy thousand customers with more than ten employees. That's gone up fivefold in a year. And even, you know, looking at guidance, it was way above what the consensus estimate was, but I still think that they're actually underplaying it. And I understand why they are, because it's sensible to under-promise and over-deliver anyway, let alone with the kind of macroeconomic uncertainties that we're facing at the moment. And it's it's just been the most remarkable story for them over the over the last year now. You know, now you have to start talking about valuation. We we talked about valuation in January. <laughs> it's, uh, it's up over four hundred and fifty percent since we added it. Um, you know, price to earnings isn't really an appropriate metric for a company growing at this rate. But just to put it out there, their price to earnings as we record this is one thousand eight hundred and twenty. 
So, so what does that what does that mean exactly? The price to earnings being that price to earnings is is the is the amount you're paying the the, the market cap of the value uh, as a ratio of its of the profit that's it's generating at the, on the bottom line. And, yeah. But of course, like you know, we don't like we don't like that metric for hyper growth companies because that metric can change so quickly. And and when you're in hyper growth mode, you're obviously investing a huge amount in the business. So your earnings at the bottom line can fluctuate really rapidly depending on how much investment you're putting in, depending on how much you're spending on R and D and marketing and stuff like that. So it's not a good it's not a good metric for a company like Zoom. Um, price to sales is another metric that we we use for kind of high growth companies. Uh, that's at 115. <laughs> I remember wow. saying maybe it was the, a year ago. I was looking at like Viva Systems with a price to earnings of, of 18, and thinking, you know, well, that's the premium you pay for a premium company. <laughs> um, <laughs> so it's really like, but, but then like, how do you how do you figure a price to sales on a company that's growing revenues at the rate it's growing? It, you know, it's it's whatever figure you land, that's going to be unrealistic. Yeah. <laughs> it's just you know. Well, well, let's put that into a bit of, of context in a different way. So as we're recording now, Zoom's market cap is in and around $130 billion. To put that into context, this nine-year-old company is now worth more than IBM, uh, and it's more than six times the valuation of its workplace collaboration comrade, Slack. Um, like, do, can, do Zoom and Slack not even live on the same levels anymore? Well, well, I would argue that they do, but perhaps there's a longer... Um sales cycle for something like slack you know yeah. the the reason that zoom has exploded in growth is because this pandemic hit us all as a massive shock and the very first thing companies needed the very first thing people needed in general was a way to communicate and a way to, like a way that was better than your typical voice call and um, and you think about like you know people talk about zoom as structuring the telecommunications sphere talk about the business travel sphere like you know, last year it's estimated there were 405 million business trips taken just by U.S. workers. Zoom is now your business travel. That's how you communicate yeah. with your partners and, and how you do deals uh, overseas or with companies that you're not that are not in the same locality as you. And consider this as well. Like this is one of the most amazing things. Zoom is a subscription-based business. Yet at the moment, new customers are contributing more to revenue than existing customers were. And usually with a subscription business, you know, the majority of your revenue is coming from the customers you signed over the previous years that are renewing their subscriptions or potentially spending more as they deploy their solutions into new business segments of the business. At the moment, it's the new sales that are actually contributing more to that revenue line. And that's insane. You don't see that yeah. a lot in, in these kind of software companies. The big question that you have for Zoom now is, do they have a sustainable competitive advantage over the very long term? And, you know, like we use Zoom because it's the best solution we found. And I think a lot of, awful lot of businesses have found that too. But there was a best solution before Zoom. You know, yeah. <laughs> Zoom, Zoom is a young company. It's, it's not been around very long. So will there be a better solution down the line or will there be a, a solution that's comparable to Zoom at a much lower cost or with a better distribution network, like let's say like a Microsoft or a Cisco it's, you know, part of Zoom's appeal is that it's really easy to set up, especially for smaller businesses. You know, I don't see a huge amount in terms of like switching costs for larger businesses. Yes, there's a learning curve and an employment element that will take larger customers will, will think kind of long and hard about switching to another provider. But, you know, for us, you know, it's so easy to set up a, a, Zoom, a Zoom account and, and get started. And, and for and other businesses are going to adopt that model. And um, now when they start rolling out complementary offerings like Zoom Phone, for example, which they just recently released, you will see those switching costs crystallize. Um, but, you know, what keeps companies loyal to a software solution? You know, a lot of the times it's operational risk as well. So you think about things like data loss, 
that's not really an issue with Zoom. You're not going to lose all your data if you switch to a competitor. Yeah. And a lot of I've seen an awful lot of people talking on Twitter about the network effects. I don't think Zoom has network effects. It's it's you know anyone can open it. If you send a Zoom link to someone, they can talk to you. You don't need the other person to have an account. So the the value creation in everyone having an account isn't really there. So there is an so, awful lot of questions. On it. Just on that point, Rory, do you think that's somewhere where Zoom might be at risk from the likes of Microsoft Teams is the first company that comes to mind there who have an incredible network and, you know, many different products where they can kind of be, get easier into your life and take full advantage of that network effect? Well, teleconferencing has been around for so long. We know there's so many opportunities out there for companies to come in and, uh, and with a viable offering. It's not difficult technology. It's just that Zoom does it better than anyone else. And like I said, that doesn't mean that, that doesn't mean they're going to be doing it better than everyone else forever. Although they do, as you said, now have a massive cash pile to reinvest in that business and keep developing this product. But yeah, I mean the the valuation at the moment is is somewhere that I think a lot of investors would feel uncomfortable, and you know we'll have to see how it plays out. But I, I, like you are paying up for what is an incredible business with an incredible story a brilliant product, a fantastic CEO who seems to really know the industry. Like I saw this tidbit about him where when he left Cisco to develop Zoom, 40 out of the 80 engineers that he was working with all instantly joined him. Like that's a guy who clearly wow. commands incredible admiration from his peer group and people clearly believe in this guy's vision and his, and his product innovation. And he still owns a massive share of the company. That's always something we like to see. So look, there's a lot of like, it checks a huge amount of boxes in terms of company you want to, you want to own shares in. But seeing a company go 45%, a company that size go 45% in one day would make any investor nervous, I think. Yeah. Uh, so what would you be looking out for over the next few months in terms of Zoom? You mentioned that cash pile. Are you going to be, you know, what would you like to see them do, reinvest that money and, and kind of build complementary product offerings? Yeah, we want to see some cross-sell along the, among the larger customers, definitely. We really want to see that large customer uh, number expand. You know, we don't know yet. It's so hard to talk about the the work from home stocks in terms of we don't know how long this is going to be going on. You know, even us as a business, we had was it September thirteenth as a as a back to work date. That's certainly yeah. not happening. And, and this is our, and we're talking about Ireland where we have re, very low case numbers, very low death rates. You know, th this is going to keep going for quite a while until potentially until a vaccine is found, which is you know a, the unknown is the X factor in this entire scenario yeah. so how many of these big businesses are going to make that switch what's the numbers we're going to look be looking at this time next year in terms of customers that are spending over a hundred thousand dollars a year with that with uh, with zoom these are all questions that the, we have you could throw them into a model but it's going to break any model you put it into because there's so many things moving at, the, at this moment that we just can't can't figure it you know so i mean they beat their consensus estimates just there by 165 million or something you know <laughs> no one on wall street <laughs> Had, had a clue what was going to happen like yeah. no one guessed it so yeah it's 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 really one of those kind of roller coaster socks you just, if you're going to get on you just better get ready for the ride well that this is the last question i'm going to ask about zoom and we'll move on it's for you rory and emmett uh, at today's price would you buy zoom one word answer will do <laughs> I invest accordingly. <laughs> I, I mean, like, I, I, I look. I love the business, and I, I'd love to buy shares in the business. I wouldn't buy a lot of shares in the business at this price point. That's that's what I'd say. I'd I'd, I'd edge into I'd, I'd edge into it.
dip your toe in maybe Emmett yeah I'm the same I mean it's highly future relevant um I just see what I believe to be better opportunities out there at the moment but uh I do think Zoom now it's going to keep its lead against all the other substitutes I I hope it has the sense to innovate appropriately and perhaps do a couple of sensible acquisitions but don't lose themselves in their you know in their newfound wealth yeah but I do I, I would yes I would buy some Zoom but I would not buy a full position Okay, cool. Let's move on then. So in the last episode of Stock Club, we talked about some of the companies that had thrived under the full effect of lockdown restrictions like Home Depot and Sea Limited. This week, we're going to go to the other end of the spectrum and look at those companies that really suffered during quarter two in lockdown. Rory, I'm going to come to you first here. One of the companies we want to look at first is C-Trip, who are currently down about 20% since the start of the year. Um, I assume this is for obvious reasons. Um, not not entirely actually. So C Trip's now called Trip dot com. Um, so uh, with a new ticker symbol, which always annoys me because it messes up all my yeah. um, <laughs> my spreadsheets. <laughs> but you know this, like Trip C Trip slash Trip dot com was was uh, a company that was sold to investors for many years as the Booking dot com of China. And in many ways, it is. You know, when we first added to the, to the My Wall Street showroom, we were seeing an awful lot of positives in terms of not just like steady high revenue growth, but also in terms of expansion into new sectors, new geographies. And it, had, you know, it recently struck a deal with Baidu, which is often called the Google of China, to effectively take control of its biggest rival in the space. And a lot of what we were banking on was that this company had a huge opportunity ahead of it, which it still does. Like it, it's estimated only about ten percent of the Chinese population travels abroad, and yet it's still one of the largest travel industries in the world. And it just has massive market share. You know, it's a huge inventory of options across everything from hotel bookings to air and train tickets to bus tickets, to even to package tours, to car yeah. rentals, pretty much anything to do with the travel space. Um, Trip.com is is there and has like a market leading advantage. They've anywhere from 200 million to 400 million monthly active users of huge database reviews. Um, our report in 2018 showed they own 53% control of all online travel, 60% share of all online accommodation, 53, 5% share of all online ticketing. So wow. like these are the kind of numbers you think like, wow, massive opportunity, massive market share. What could go wrong? However, <laughs> the business has the business story definitely from an investor's point of view has become so convoluted. You know, I could spend the whole podcast talking about this company and probably bore everyone to death. But they essentially have every single finger in every single pie and with so many different <laughs> terms you know like they own 38 percent of elong they own 45 percent voting interest in qnr baidu owns 19 percent of them they have an online business affiliate uh, whose name i won't even try to pronounce they're the largest shareholder in an indian online travel company called make my trip and, and and this kind of signifies the scale of what we're talking about in china you know we discussed many times it's a very very big country a very big market they don't talk about cities you know they, they talk about tier one cities and tier two cities and tier yeah. three cities because there's just so many of them that they have to break them up into these kind of smaller subcategories and the two things that this does this this kind of convoluted story means that they seem to constantly be in this transition period. <laughs> They're always trying to get align the various interests together and, and get the whole thing working together as a unit. And it also just makes it hard for investors to understand the long-term story going forward. And, you know, there's so many times I approach this business with, with trying to kind of figure out what's going on with them. And you just throw your hands in frustration going like, what have you done now? What is going, where is your business going now? Um, in terms well, of COVID nineteen, that's an important point to make, Rory. That like if you if you don't understand the core 
tra- trajectory of a business, it's very hard to believe in them enough to invest long term. Yeah, it's very hard to get a clear sense of where the business is heading. But even yeah. as someone who's studying the business, they they themselves seem to have a tough time in explaining, you know, where this is potentially going to lead. Yeah. And, you know, in terms of COVID-19, obviously that was going to have a negative impact on them. You know, China handled the virus very well in terms of domestic outbreaks, but worldwide acceleration means there's very strict travel restrictions in place at the moment. Pretty much no foreigners are getting into China. There's a 14-day quarantine on all nationals re-entering. And that's going to hurt. That is going to hurt uh, Trip.com. It's Thirty to forty percent of their revenue comes from international travel. Their net revenues for the last quarter fell forty-two percent. They're expecting an even steeper decline in the coming quarter. They're guiding from anywhere between sixty-seven and seventy-seven percent decrease in revenues, which is tough for any business to handle. And, you know, I mean, they are an aggregator, so they have. They don't have the, the kind of massive capex cost that someone like a cruise line would have to deal with. You know. At the same time, right, you look at a company like Booking Group, for example, you know, they're valued at $80 billion. Trip at the moment is valued at $18 billion. Um, you know, Booking is definitely a better run business. The market that they're operating in is a more profitable market. But where's the bigger growth opportunity over the long term? You know, if you've got a very, very long term horizon, Trip.com could be a very good investment because there is so much room for them to expand compared to their their Western peers. But not out of the woods yet. No, certainly not out of the woods yet. They've, they've got an awful lot of like restructuring, getting that business back in terms of making the whole thing work as a unit, making the whole thing it, that it's not just, you know, spray and pray everywhere and hope that they, they hit a big one somewhere. Um, yeah, that's that, that would be my my take on the company at the moment. Cool. Thanks for that. So, Emmett, I'm going to come to you then, and we're talking about Eventbrite. So, Eventbrite was obviously hammered by the cancellation of pretty much all live gigs and events and just fun in general over the past few months, and the stock is down about 50% year-to-date. Do you see any way back for Eventbrite at the moment? Yeah, Eventbrite is a business I want to like as a result of it being one of the very few B2C software companies that has a giant brand and has not had a two or three or four X run in the last year. And as you say, it's ha- it's has very obvious headwinds. And as you could argue the absolute opposite of uh, effect of what happened Zoom. Um, so Eventbrite, as you say, it, it, it floated about two years ago. Um, it kind of had a, the very first short-term run-up and, and it kind of hit a high just soon after flotation of about 37 bucks a share and it's in total down 70% since then and as you rightfully said James it's down a further 50% in, or it's down 50% rather in the last year so it's it's a, it's a company that's 11 bucks a share its market cap is virtually a billion dollars on the nose and it does have quite a lot of i think mind space occupancy and in investors because they know the brand they've seen the product they see it's cheap quote unquote but you know as you said the real question is can it grow can it grow back to its post ipo price 37 bucks and beyond and and that is the real question um you know before the pandemic what is particularly interesting to me about eventbrite is that it was starting to slow anyway um yeah 2017 revenue growth was 51 percent 2018 revenue growth was 45% and 2019 revenue growth came in at 12%. So, you know, the trajectory that we are looking for, even had coronavirus not happened, 
wasn't necessarily there. Now, the business is actually structured now to survive. After you strip, after they pay off all debt, they have something like 350 or 360 million dollars in cash. Um, it, at the, right now, today, it costs about 34 million per quarter to run the business. So simply, it has has 10 quarters left in the tank yeah. as things are today. But they are also engaging in some significant cost cutting, which they say is going to take 100 million uh, out of the business every year. And by Q4, they'll have reduced expenses to that effect. So the business is definitely structured to survive from a financial perspective for several years, which is what you'd want really, because none of us know where the virus is going. We all certainly have hopes and aspirations and dreams of going yeah. on a cruise yeah. or holiday next year, but you know, there's still, we can't bank on that. So yeah, Eventbrite will survive, but that doesn't necessarily mean it's a good investment. They they recently formed a partnership of sorts with, with, with Facebook, um, yeah. ticketing on Facebook and you know it looks like a pretty good deal and it allows customers to buy tickets on, on the Facebook platform and it, but it does beg the question you know if Facebook are looking over their shoulder and seeing traction on this um, add-on they'll just go and do it themselves I would presume I mean why would they share any revenue or share value rather with you know with a third party so while it's Good. I wouldn't get comfortable that they've done a partnership with, with Facebook, but certainly they they said something to Facebook that was convincing enough for for that kind of integration. Um, yeah, yeah. You know, um, really, their growth now is coming from free events, and I guess that's good insofar as it is growth. Um, it's keeping their platform and brand alive. Um, I attended an Eventbrite online event this morning and it went very well. And so far as my user experience was good. Um, but really an investment in Eventbrite today at circa 11 bucks a share um, on the blind anticipation that we'll get back up to its IPO price um, isn't very well thought out. You know, it might, but what I would say in the way I'd conclude is that business to consumer brands that are well known have a habit of surviving and growing again. And there's barely been an example of a stock that's B2C that in its absolute trough of disillusionment and despair where I decided that's it, it's done, game over, has it not risen again? Like it's very rare to see a B2C actually go kaput so you know and taking that as i suppose a hand-waving macro argument you could say yeah eventbrite will eventually get there it has a few years of uh, of survival in the tanks and if when coronavirus passes you can only expect them to um you know fill the sales again and for, okay. for you know for them to survive and grow a, a big if and when though yeah a big if and when <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. So the last company I want to come to then is Vale Resorts. This is a stock that we actually expected to be more affected than it currently is, um, down just a little over 12% since January. Why is a company that depends so much on travel and vacations recovered so well, Rory? Um, well, I mean, like it got hit very hard at the start. So, you know, we talk about travel, you know, in terms of sea trip being affected, or trip.com being affected, entertainment in terms of event park being affected. Vale is a mixture of entertainment and travel stock. You know, it's, yeah. it's, it's the biggest ski resort operator in the world. It closed all its North America resorts midway through March, and it, it basically went into emergency mode. Like the management paused their dividend for at least two quarters. They took out uh, $600 million in debt. They cut CapEx spending. They cut corporate salaries. They furloughed workers. 
And in a way, it did really help uh, soften the blow in this company because they pushed the button right away. They they were early and made sure they had cash available to weather the storm. And I think that gave investors quite a lot of um, quite a lot of confidence in the business. Obviously, they were affected. The results were affected in the quarter that ended April 30th. They saw revenue fall about 27%, which actually wasn't too bad. And um, the first half of the quarter was not very badly affected. They still managed to post a profit of $152 million, even though that was down by 50% from the year before. They've also offered credits to customers with season passes for the next year, and that's going to eat into revenue. But again, I'm happy they did this. This is management thinking long-term. They're not letting the stock yeah. price dictate their behavior. They're building that loyalty with their customers. And, you know, going forward, they've opened up their parks for summer activities, which include kind of like mountain climbing, hikes, biking. It's, it's never, you know, the summer activities are never going to make up for lost experience in ski season. But, you know, with people not being able to travel abroad and the fact that it's all outdoors, they may get some business from it. And um, the problem is, of course, these places are rarely close to major metro areas. You usually have to fly there, uh, yeah. which people aren't doing at the moment either. You know, the fact that the height of the pandemic is coming in their off season is probably fortuitous. Uh, but then again, look, you know, we keep coming back to this. We still don't know how long this is going to be on for. The spread yeah. across America is still high. You're talking about still talking about 40,000 cases a day. So, yeah, what's going to happen when ski season starts? You know, if we're still in this crisis, are people going to want to go skiing? Are they going to see Are they going to see it as an option to be outdoors and not have to travel abroad? But, you know, that's the other yeah, side of the coin. True, but it's, yeah. really, it's really going to depend on what level of fear there is out there, what level of restrictions there are in terms of where people can go. You know, no, no one wants to go on a ski holiday when they can't dine in the in the nice restaurant or drink in the in the in the chalet. You know, it's so it's all dependent on on where we are with this pandemic, and it's, the, uh, so that's why I think it's it's great that they did take those emergency measures measures early. It's it's a stock of admired for an awful long time. I think it was stock of the month not too long ago. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I mean, look, it could be a buying opportunity long term. I think it's just it's Vale is always a good buying opportunity. Those mountains aren't going anywhere any anytime soon. Uh, so yeah, interesting company, interesting time for it. Another pullback would be great because, as you said, it has recovered quite substantially from that big drop it saw in February. That's an interesting thing about Vale, and it's it's what I think Peter Lynch calls is it hidden assets. The you know you forget about the actual mountains they're built on. Yeah, I think you had seven categories of stocks. Um, I'm sure our listeners will correct me. Uh, it was either five or seven, and hidden assets were the hardest to spot and value. But he definitely, like I think Vale is a very good example of that. Uh, Nina Paper was another one. It was a paper mills a few years ago, and it totally had. There was no recognition in its share price for the uh, of the fact that it owned hundreds of thousands of acres of forestry that it was yeah. using to make Forest, paper. Yeah. The business was only valued of the, the tons of paper that came out the front door. And, and when I look at Vale Resorts, it kind of reminds me a little bit of Nina Paper um, and a lot of other businesses. And that asset, that hidden asset may never be reflected in the share price, which is something we just have to deal with. Absolutely. Thanks for that. So let's move on and take a look at some of the things going on in My Wall Street at the moment. We're at the start of a new month, so that means that members of the My Wall Street community have lots of exciting things to look forward to over the next few weeks. Our Stock of the Month selection is due to go live on Monday, September the 7th. This pick will join a list of stocks that have returned an average of 144% since we started picking them in 2016. Make sure you don't miss out on that new edition. 
We'll also be recording a new episode of the Stock of the Month podcast over the coming weeks, as well as adding a brand new stock to the My Wall Street shortlist. Members of the My Wall Street community will get access to all of this great stuff and more as soon as they're published. If you're not a member yet, you can sign up for a free trial now by just clicking on the link in the notes for today's show. Uh, This is the part of the show, guys, where we usually go to jargon busters. But today, instead, we have a special treat for you guys. Earlier, I had a chat with David O'Donovan, who's the chief editor with our friends over at NOAA. In this interview with David, we chat about his experiences working for one of the largest market-making firms in the world and lessons that we as investors can learn from the game of poker. Enjoy. So I'm joined here today by David O'Donovan, the chief editor for our friends over at NOAA. Welcome to Stock Club, David. How does it feel to be the very first guest on Stock Club? Uh, Thanks, James. Yeah, um, it feels great. I'm a big fan of uh, what you and the team are doing and I've really enjoyed listening uh, to the podcast over the last few weeks. Um, So yeah, keen to be a participant. I hope I, I can just be as uh, knowledgeable and, and uh, add as much uh, value to the, to the listening experience as you guys do. I should probably point out that I, I actually didn't ask you to say that in the prep for the show. Um, so we're going, to talk of, we're going to talk a little bit, bit more about the ways in which my Wall Street and Noah are collaborating mm-hmm. later on. But I first want to talk about some of your own experience with investing uh, in the US stock market. Before you joined NOAA, you worked as a risk analyst at the private market-making firm Susquehanna. Just for listeners that aren't aware, can you briefly explain what a market-maker is and what Susquehanna do specifically? So Susquehanna's uh, main role it would be a, one of a market-maker. So the best way to describe a market-maker is that they are a person or an entity that facilitate the everyday trading uh, on, an, on an exchange. So. When, when you go to an exchange to buy or sell a security, uh, you'll see prices. You'll see um, a, a price that you can buy or sell securities at. And behind those prices, uh, an entity exists, and that entity is, is typically a market maker. Yeah. Without them, you pretty much wouldn't have a, have a fully functioning or, or, or efficient exchange. So essentially, if you think about... Um, if you think about the classic image of, of, of stock exchanges that you see on the news and you see all these prices up on a big board and they're constantly showing yeah. what people can buy and sell securities for, if you didn't have market makers, that screen would be very spotty. Like you'd have, you'd have occasional uh, prices in different places, but it wouldn't be a continuous flow of prices. Every security wouldn't have a clear uh, indicative price of yeah. what you could buy and sell. So basically the market maker in that case is providing um, providing that opportunity for you to be able to buy and sell at, at, at what they would consider a reasonable price. So market makers kind of provide the liquidity to the market in some way. They do. They help they help in a massive, in a massive way there. Uh, and I guess that would, that, that's what they see as their vital service. And uh, they they work quite closely with exchanges and, and they're, they're quite a vital partner to exchanges because they help that yeah. exchange exist. Um, another just way to think about it as well is, is, is in, a, in kind of more layman terms is, is they're kind of like a sports bookie. Um, okay. So, you know, you know, you're kind of Paddy Power um, uh, example for, for, um, for Irish and, and UK listeners and uh, are, are even uh, more so even like a car dealer. Like, you know, they, they're, they're an entity that you go to with either uh, the desire to buy or sell something and they stand in, in, in the middle and they're willing to take the risk involved in that transaction. Cool. So let's talk about Susquehanna then specifically. What, what function or what space in, in the market did they occupy and what did they do? Yeah, so SIG, um, so Susquehanna, they, they're, um, their acronym, their main acronym was Susquehanna International Group, and, and, and uh, I guess uh, SIG just became, became the more uh, the more easy uh, term to go by for, for, for their name. So SIG, their main role uh, would have been actually with uh, yeah. derivatives. So that's how they um, initially uh, made their name. 
that's how they initially I suppose established themselves in the market uh, and in particular uh, trading options yeah so options I suppose very quickly for, for people um, not too familiar with it with, with what, the, what that security is is uh, an instrument which allows you to um, to purchase the option to buy or sell a security an equity for example um, at a particular point in time and at a particular price in the future yeah so uh, they started off with those uh, and they, they became a massive market maker in the US um, expanded internationally then as ETFs became a became a major financial security uh, SIG, were, SIG were actually a big player behind those they they um, okay. they started to market make those as well so that 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 then evolves to be their two main their two main assets um, but uh, outside of outside of options in ETFs where they hold pretty pretty strong market positions they also trade in a variety of um, other securities everything from uh, commodities to uh, cryptocurrencies to even actually more recently, and they've actually moved into sports trading as well. Okay, so wow, quite a quite a diverse book, but uh, the main focus would be options and ETFs. Cool. So, in your time at Suscana, in their role as a market maker, I imagine reacting to news and, and new events is very very important. Um, can you tell us a, a little bit more about how quickly a firm like Suscana can react to market news as it comes out? Yeah, so so this this was interesting. So so for my my, my role as a risk analyst, I wasn't actually um, in a position where I was executing any trades myself. But what I what I would have been doing is is um, is uh, seeing how quickly um, traders would react because the the uh, the items that I would be analysing the risk on like different positions that they held or different trades that they were executing, I would see pretty much in real time how they impacted on on the overall capital that the firm had basically invested or had put at risk in the market. And um, I I would pretty much be, you know, sitting monitoring um, various positions. And oftentimes before even news became apparent before you'd have the the news announcement of, of, of a major development coming on, on one of the screens in the office from Bloomberg or um, before you'd even hear something over one of the hoots so one of the hoots would have been the kind of intercoms that that were throughout the office um, uh, making announcements on big news before you even hear those you'd start to see prices move and it was quite interesting because I guess in that in that trading environment uh, sounds are used quite quite a lot so yeah. every trader would have their own sounds to basically indicate and to, to bring their attention to certain developments uh, usually around a price so if a price moved in a particular direction they'd get an alert so some of the traders got quite, quite creative with their sounds as well so it's quite interesting when, when things really kicked off you, you just hear a lot of uh, a lot of yeah so what, what i found amazing was just how um, in that position how quickly prices would move with the news and even some cases before the news was actually properly disseminated like actually and and by disseminated i mean out to the masses like so so it's a case that um it's a case that uh, i suppose the first person to get the news has already started reacting to it by the time that hits Susquehanna, it's probably seconds later, maybe maybe even milliseconds later. Um, but then by the time it hits Bloomberg, by the time it hits you and I, but by the time it hits a push notification on our phone, we're often lagging quite a bit. So that that, that was quite quite a quite a insightful um, you know uh, experience for myself uh, just to see how quick things yeah. react. Yeah, it's fascinating, and I think it's something that that's become relevant, especially in the recent market. You know, I, I think of pharmaceutical companies recently and the kind of race to find a, a vaccine for the coronavirus COVID-19 and you know you've seen a lot of them boom and drop based on news about you know potential vaccine or potential funding and stuff like that from what you're telling me by the time we get that push notification on our phone it's it's already too late the the moves have been made the market has moved in terms of that um for the ordinary retail investor then you know if if we're kind of 
putting forth the position that by the time you hear the news, it's already too late to invest. What kind of advice would you give when they're competing against these giant market-making firms? Yeah, yeah. So that's that's a really, really, really important question, I guess, for people to ask themselves. Is like when when they set out to to participate in financial markets, like what kind of participant do they really want to be? Do they want to compete with someone like someone like a, a Siskahana of this world, or, or or do they do they need to take a different approach? Uh, and maybe even before um, answering the question directly, I suppose I'll touch upon just just to, to give a deeper sense of of some of the advantages that that a that a company uh, um, like Sig would yeah. have, um, even even let alone let alone the news that we're seeing, but also the prices that we see. So when you go into trading apps, um, they have they have come on leaps and bounds uh, over the last ten years to give you quick, you know, accurate and meaningful prices. Um, but it is it's still a case that uh, you know your your standard broker, your standard trading app won't necessarily be able to to actually present prices to you at the same speed that they would to um, or, or at least uh, they wouldn't present prices at the same speed that Susquehanna would have access to prices. Yeah. And and that's just because I guess you know they have their own internal systems that that prices need to flow through. Um, they have their own risk metrics that they need to run prices through before they offer them to you and I as as as, as customers. So. Um, even just from a, from executing the trade um, to actually uh, see a price that's meaningful, oftentimes brokers can can lag. And, yeah. and um, one way you might see this is that uh, if if you were really quick to react to a news uh, or react to a news development, sometimes your broker wouldn't even be able to facilitate it in that instance. Wow, okay. Because they themselves would would have to catch up. Now it all it all depends on exactly how how what platform you're using and 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 what access you paid for, but typically for for yeah, an ordinary um, retail investor, you know, it'd be a standard brokerage account, online brokerage account. So it's it's not just the the flow of information coming to you, but it's actually your ability to react to that information. You're already at a exactly, disadvantage. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And 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 it's for good reason as well because the. It, what's happening in the whole industry really is it's an absolute arms race for speed. Yeah. And you know the companies like say they have um, built up the capital, been successful throughout the years to be able to take you know tens of millions, if not hundreds of millions of dollars, and put it into infrastructure and technology yeah. that you and I just have no chance of accessing without without paying paying through the nose for. So like they're using technology that is. That is uh, mind-boggling, you know, like uh, fiber optic cables under the under the Atlantic to um, microwaves sending uh, messages between you know between the US and and, and Europe right. to buying uh, you know prime locations next to exchanges to house servers that that allow them to facilitate prices. You know, it's it's just um, it's mind-boggling how how much um, how much of an arms race it is for 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 speed here. And you know, Flash Boys is, is quite a often cited example of you know the the race um, between financial firms to to. To get orders into exchanges, I remember uh, coming across a report. I think it was um, about eighteen months ago now, talking about how speeds, even since since that book was written, have have um, increased sixtyfold. Wow, that's incredible! So, like it was already it was already at like you know milliseconds. Yeah. So now it's gone down even even smaller again. So look, that, that that's just 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 kind of reinforced that point that speed you you just don't stand a chance yeah. really. So. Um, to, to, to kind of focus on, on on what you can do as an individual investor, what I would say is you know you need to find that edge, uh, or you need to find that advantage, or at least that common playing field that you can that you can um, that you can exist on. And um, I think what you need to you need to look at is is uh, you know what what over time can you factor into your decision making that um, that allows you to level that field. And I think knowledge is is by the way that the the most uh, most prominent thing that comes comes to mind is is actually you know taking in news, allowing it to digest, allowing it to, to kind of um, to be considered for a few days, you know analyze it, 
you know, do do your due diligence on an investment yeah. and, and play to your play to play to your second advantage, which is, you know, most of us at least we, we can take a long term perspective on things. You know, we're we're able to be satisfied by taking um, months to years to you know to, to, to decades perspective if we're trying to build wealth. So playing to those two advantages means that you don't have to rush, you don't have to participate in that speed race. You can sit back and yes, you might miss out on some opportunities. To, to profit, um, but you know your 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 odds of profiting in that playing field at the moment are so low yeah. that um, you know you're probably best sitting that one out and uh, and uh, you know putting the probability more in your favour by by uh, looking at the knowledge aspect. You know, I think that's a very interesting point you made there as well. Is that you know as an individual retail investor, the only person you have to answer to is yourself. So if you don't you know hit a certain return in in a certain year, you're not going to lose your job. You're, you're not trying to to make these short term returns. You can take a much longer approach to to how your portfolio performs. Just before this call, I was I was reading up a bit about Susquehanna and. Uh, I read a great article um, about its kind of foundation and its genesis, um, and it was actually founded by six college friends who realised that their skills from poker games they played could help them in making probability-based decisions on the market. Um, the co- one of the co-founders of Susquehanna, Jeff Yass, actually said, and I quote, the basic concept that applies to both poker and option trading is that the primary object is not winning the most hands, but rather maximising your gains. I-, I, think, I think that's a very interesting kind of a very interesting comparison to make between poker and investing. How fundamental is the game of poker to the culture of Susquehanna? Yeah, it's pretty. It's pretty key. Um, so I suppose how how um, practically it applies day in day out varies depending on what kind of trading desk you're on. But the the um, the core values uh, and the core skills that you develop from from participating and playing poker uh, can be seen throughout the firm. So they yeah. they want people. To understand first and foremost that you cannot win every hand. You know, you you cannot sit down and expect to win every hand. You have to basically look for an advantage that just tips the odds in your favour. You have to be able to look for that edge that allows you to win more often than 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 your competitor. So you're you're not looking to win every time. You're looking to win. Um, you're looking to, to to win more often. That's 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 the goal okay. here. And and that's the same with a poker player. Like no poker player can sit down and expect you know to win every hand. That that would be the, the luckiest person absolutely on on, on the planet. Like um, uh, you need to um, understand that and, and and factor that into your decision making so that when you do have that loss, when you do have you know a streak of losses. You, you you remind yourself uh, what your strategy is, you remind yourself what your intention is, and you remind yourself that the fact is that you're gonna have these periods where losses come if you have conviction in what you're still doing, if you have um, your, your process well thought out and tested, then uh, you know things will will tip in your favor uh, eventually. You know? um, uh, so that is that is that is one of the biggest biggest takeaways I would say that the company um, enforces or, or reinforces with the game of poker. And they actually, encourage people to play poker within the offices i heard yeah yeah massively so actually so um it again it kind of depends on 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 uh, what aspect of the company you're you're involved in but you know for the the sake of a massive vitas for for training people um when they come in the door so they actually uh look to um take take um in uh, graduates and and um train them in the in kind of the the systems that's that's that developed over the years and educate them um to to um to basically become good traders, so the vast majority of their traders actually have come through a come through an educational program. Um, it, okay. it was it was originally called the uh, the AT System Trader Program, but um, I believe since I actually departed, they they changed the name to to, to a quantitative trader um, program. So 
uh, yeah, very much so in that in that role. Um, as you're as you're learning to become a trader, uh, poker is something that you you are expected to play. Um, and the keyword there is expected. Like you know, you, you do have to go down and and, and uh, you know play after after work, play a few hands. Um, because they they it, it's vital to your success. Like you know, if if you can if you can um, play poker well and and understand how it works, understand that understand the key principles. You know, work out the the odds. Be quick at working out the odds. Be quick at factoring decisions. And managing your biases, managing your emotions, then you'll 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 uh, give yourself a massive chance of becoming a becoming a good uh, trader. So that's definitely um, huge in the trading world. Outside of that, um, it is it's definitely encouraged though other departments to uh, get involved as well. And every year the company actually has a has annual poker uh, tournament with a nice a nice prize um, for the winner. Yeah. Um, so uh, they uh, basically get everyone across the entire organization. Um, so I, I think it's about about two and a half to. Two and a half thousand people now. I think at this stage, if not even a bit more. Uh, again, the company's growing quite fast. So even since I left uh, two, two, two odd years ago, yeah, I'm sure the number has has, has gone up again. And uh, um, yeah, so throughout the whole throughout the whole uh, um, all the global offices, uh, everyone plays in regional games to begin with, and then it uh, moves up to um, a final table that uh, is um, held over in their uh, headquarters over in Philadelphia. And so the the top players from all around the, um, all the regional offices go over and and uh, play it out for for a nice handsome reward at the end. So um, it's a, sounds it, like a pretty pretty good perk of the job. Yeah, it, it, it's nice, it's nice, and it, it and it's also kind of lends a bit of a social side to it as well. Like, yeah, um, absolutely. Like those, those games are they're they're serious because people want to people are competitive and saying people want to want to win, but they're um, they're definitely not as uh, as um, serious or regimented as the as the training poker games that they have so yeah. well that brings us nicely around to the upcoming series that my wall street is curating for noah about how poker can help you to become a better investor in this series you'll be able to listen to professionally read versions of articles from bloomberg the irish times and business insider that explain the science behind success in poker how some of these skills can help you to become a better investor and more on how some of the biggest names in the world of investing are honing their skills at the poker table this series will be live in NOAA next week, so make sure to download the app and check it out there. Uh, David, it was great to talk to you today. Thanks for joining me on Stock Club, and we hope to have you on again soon. Thanks, James. Really, really appreciate it. Enjoyed it. So, guys, I hope you enjoyed that interview with David. Let's move on to the elevator pitch now to close out the podcast. Um, it's fair to say that the market has been on a crazy run recently, with all three of the major US indexes touching all-time highs at the moment. A lot of this has been prompted by the incredible rise of tech companies like Zoom, as we've already talked about, and Tesla, of course, over the last few months. So my elevator pitch for you guys today is of all the stocks that have run up crazily recently, which would you still invest in today? Um, Emmett, let's come to you first. Yeah, well, there's a lot to choose from, um, but I think for me, uh, the answer is quite easy, and it's a stock that's up almost 300% on the nose uh, from this day 12 months ago, and it's uh, Teladoc. And I, okay. I like Teladoc today more than I've ever liked it, especially uh, in light of the Livongo acquisition, which we discussed uh, maybe last in the last podcast or the one before. Uh, I just see this as one of the brands out there that while is only known by a select few at the moment i believe in the next five and ten years will be known by virtually everyone in our part of the world and when i say our part of the world i mean english speaking part of the world and and further yeah absolutely another stock that really benefited from the want for people to stay apart from other people <laughs> uh rory i'll come to you next then what uh company would you still invest in today 
Yeah, I'm actually going to say the one the, the one that I'm going to invest in next, the one that's definitely on my, my buy list, Ooh. which I might do in the next day a, or two. A Rory Karen exclusive. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you usually have to follow your Twitter account to get this information. Well, you can do that too. <laughs> um, <laughs> well, the company, the company I'm excited about buying stock in in the next couple of days is a company called C-Limited, which we discussed just last week. Um, I was going to say Peloton, but I, I know you'd go mad at me. <laughs> <laughs> no. the, the podcast will just end there. <laughs> uh, now, C-Limited is a company I'm, I'm admiring more and more the more I read about them. Uh, I really like the market opportunity they've got. The, you know, it's an unusual mix of the gaming side and the e-commerce side, but they're using both to their advantage in order to build out the separate segments of the business. I like the CEO. I've, you know, I'm a big fan of that part of the world. And I think, um, I think they're only going to be a much bigger company in, in 10 years than they are today. So even with its big run up, I'm, I'm happy to buy some shares today and wait, wait it out. Yeah. I'm just looking here that they've been, how much are they up this year? Uh, maybe 300%. Yeah. Something like that. <laughs> Should have listened so. to Jeff earlier. <laughs> I know. <laughs> so that's it from this week's Stock Club. Don't forget all the great new stuff that's coming in at wallstreet.com. Don't forget to subscribe to Stock Club. And if you're enjoying the podcast, please leave a review or a rating for us on whatever podcasting platform you listen to us on. That's it from us here today. We'll talk to you in two weeks. Happy investing. This episode of Stock Club is brought to you by Hyundai. Restart your journey towards a greener world with Hyundai's next generation of zero emission cars. Find out more about their range of electric vehicles and the savings they can bring to your company and employees at Hyundai.ie. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com.